Welcome to The Breadwinners, a podcast about the never-ending hustle and its impact on all aspects of our lives. From our financial life, to our relationships, to our kids, to our health, we're interested in what it takes to keep everything going. This podcast is about women, working, money, and family, and in every episode, we consider the research and share our takes on what we're learning every day about breadwinning. I'm Jennifer Owens. I write about working, wellness, and women, and founded the Working Mother Research Institute. And most days, I'm joined by my co-host, Raquel Ellison. But on this very special episode of The Breadwinners, I'm joined by Christina Blacken. When we met last year, I saw a kindred soul. Christina is a storyteller, a speaker, a writer, and founder and chief story strategist of The New Quo, a narrative intelligence consultancy helping leaders tap into the psychological power of story to create inclusive workplaces, communicate with deeper influence, and achieve status quo breaking goals. She's also the host of Sway Them in Color, a podcast dedicated to creating a diverse narrative on leadership and creativity. And I totally will tell you right now, check the links, check it out. You'll love it. Welcome, Christina. Thank you. Thank you for that wonderful intro. Oh, I am so glad to have you here because uh, you have come into my life just recently. Sometimes I'm talking to people I've known for like 10 years and I have adored you from the minute one. So I'm just telling you that right now. So thank you. The feelings mutual. The feelings mutual. Well, sorry to call it out so fast. So, uh, so usually, uh, we start with a number, you know, Raquel and I love like, oh, there's 30% of something or whatever. But this week I thought that storyteller to storyteller that we'd stick with words. And I love talking about the power of language and word choice. And it's, it's, really important, specifically right now for a lot of reasons. And I was listening to your most recent episode, and I liked this phrase you were talking about, that just because you're liberal, you don't get an oppression pass. And I was like, dang, but it's those other people causing trouble. It's not me. So I thought we'd start with that phrase. Well, the phrase came from me cracking a joke with uh, my best friend about what was happening right now. And we were kind of lamenting about, especially liberal white people's tendency to say, this is not me. You know, when we have racism and issues and police brutality in the media, it's those hillbillies, it's those people with the Make America Great Again hats with missing teeth. You know, it's a caricature. And there's a lack of examination and accountability of the daily actions people have that do contribute to the systems of oppression around us, even if it's unintentional and unconscious. And I was like, you know, it's not six flags. You don't get an oppression pass and get to pat, you know, pat yourself on the back and say you haven't done anything. When in fact, some of the the most powerful work people can do, especially around social justice, is examining their own beliefs, behaviors, and actions, because that's what you have the most control over, what you think, what you believe, what you say, and what you engage and most people are so externally focused on everyone else and not examining themselves. And so that's why I coined the phrase. I think language is super powerful, like you said, because it's symbolic. It makes people to stop and think about the issue, maybe in a totally different way than they would. Yeah. And I just like the phrase. I'm like, this is really catchy. to be like, you don't get an oppression pass, okay? And that also was inspired by a conversation. Um, someone reached out to me, a gay man that I know. He's a speaker. And um, he was kind of lamenting about feeling really torn with all of the issues that are happening, the racial issues that are happening because he's a gay man and doesn't want to be lumped into the same category as other white men around this issue and was really centering himself in his feelings and his issues. And I'm like, at the end of the day, it's really important to understand intersectionality just because you have one oppressed marginalized piece of your identity 
doesn't mean you don't benefit in other ways. And I said, even me as a light-skinned black woman, there are parts of white supremacy that I have benefited from because of what I look like. Because I am a little bit closer to a Eurocentric standard of beauty or a Eurocentric standard of what's acceptable, what's palatable, and what's considered or assumed non-threatening. So I can acknowledge that and still know that as a black woman, I've experienced a ton of overt and covert racism. So it doesn't negate the things I've been through just to acknowledge that piece of privilege or unearned privilege that has happened in my life. And he couldn't really get with it. I mean, he kind of got it. And that's when I was like, yeah, people really want oppression passes to be like, it ain't me. I got black friends. I've got black kids. I've, you know, taken this class, you know, social justice 101 in 1985. And I'm good. Like, I've never done anything wrong. It was 1987. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good year. It's a good year. Um, But yeah, so that's where that phrase came from. And I think one of the things, especially when it comes to social justice or even movements around um, the the Democratic Party or or liberal thinking, language is actually one of their biggest stumbling blocks because we are not as privy or savvy on how do you take these really complicated abstract issues and create terms and metaphors and visuals and stories to get people to understand them at a deeper level, to move them emotionally and to garner a new picture and interest. And we haven't done, even with the term racism, like the actual term racism i think it was created in like 1935 and it hasn't been rebranded it hasn't been re-examined there's not new words for it but then on the other end when people are trying to combat any kind of social justice progress they say terms like social justice warrior or snowflake like these are very new terms and everyone understands what it means it's a derogatory term around people who are interested in equality and progress for everybody so there's something to be learned from that. How can we use language more effectively, more strategically to get people to learn and to see concepts in a new light? That, yes, because snowflake is so it's it's so descriptive, right? It's you know, it's like everyone thinks they're special, uh, everyone's a little too fragile, everyone's yep. you know, there's all these like that's a genius. That's a, a genius description to to you know dismiss uh someone you don't you know you're like that whole group and then to categorize them and do yes that's yes we i guess we do need to get better so tell me about like well how do we get better absolutely so the work that i do is all around the concept of narrative intelligence which is the idea that human brains are wired to understand the world around us through narrative it was actually a term that was coined i think in the 1960s when they were first studying machines and how to make machines act and operate like humans. And now in the field of artificial intelligence, there are tons of people studying how do we get machines to act more like humans? And the only thing in the way is narrative because machines can't think narratively and they can't operate narratively, um, which is really interesting. And that is because we're wired, even our memories, our learning centers, the ways that we talk about how we experience the world is all narrative and stories. So if people can understand how narrative affects their own psychology and behavior, as well as how to use narrative effectively to inspire specific action or influence behavior, they can be more effective leaders and ultimately solve certain social and cultural issues. And so I teach that in communication workshops for leaders. So professional development around how to improve their narrative intelligence on a number of topics from unconscious bias to culture change. And then I also help underrepresented founders use their stories more effectively to be leaders, to accomplish their goals. And really my mission is how do we have more inclusive and transformative leadership? And I think that's one of the main problems we face as a society across every single industry and across so many issues is we have fear-based, scarcity-driven leadership 
which includes bias, racism, sexism. Those are all wrapped up in that style of leadership. So how do we change leadership through storytelling and narrative? Because one of the most powerful tools any person has is narrative to lead people, to inspire people to be a leader. And so that's what I teach in my workshops and also what I do as a consultant. Um, And then I provide copywriting services because there are some people who are like, listen, I don't necessarily want to learn narrative, but I will pay you to write and to make narrative for me. Right. Like make fake, find the words (laughs) for me. And I'm like, I could do that for you. So I also do writing for individuals, especially around brand story and how do you take an idea, give it the right sort of messaging language um, and values so that it resonates with people and and achieves a certain end goal. So, and this was really inspired because, you know, I spent the past 10 years of my career using narrative in different ways. At first I was in the nonprofit space and was doing cause marketing campaigns and using storytelling to get young people to get off the couch and give a damn about different issues. And then from there I went into the media world and was at a publisher. So it was an editorial publisher, but I was using storytelling for branded content and household name brands like Toyota and Amazon and MailChimp and using storytelling to help them better sell their products. So after a while I was like, well, if story is so effective and getting millions of people to pay attention or getting them to spend money or, you know, having them change their behavior, how do we take this tool and use it for a transformative leadership and personal development and also for certain social issues that we're not really talking about as much, especially when it comes to the workplace and culture within a workplace, because so many workplaces are very toxic and they have so many issues that are a microcosm of what we're seeing in the world today, which is disengagement, lots of different types of systems of inequality and a lack of belonging. And a lot of that is driven through narrative. So that's really why I started what I did especially, you know, as a black woman moving through corporate America for the last 10 years, I got to experience it firsthand how narratives within a company affect the culture, affect the development, affect the output, and how much that can make or break a community and also what people are putting out into the world. When it comes to narratives, some of them are, you know, the way like it's, it's so deep, the way we I, I don't even know that sometimes mm. it's someone who has a story for every occasion. I mean, I just all everything you're saying, I just think I just speak in metaphor and simile like all the time. I just can't help it. I always have to make some con- about like pencils, you know, like it has to be it's it's the most pedantic thing. But also deeply that um, that these stories, it, it, it's it's triggering good, bad and different. It just it triggers the way, and I think that's the feeling of connection, don't you think? Like that feeling of, of you say something, and and it's all about making the connection. Because without the connection, communication is just words. That the earliest thing that most kids learn how to do with language is to tell a story, and that's because your brain just thinks that way. And there's two really interesting cognitive phenomenons as to why. The first is narrative transport, which was studied. I think in the year 2000 by two researchers called TC Brock and Green. And they wanted to see what happens to your brain when you're listening to a story because the science about it will help us to understand why it's even effective. And they realized that when you're listening to a story, all of the different centers of your brain, so the emotional centers, the ration and like logic centers are all firing at the same exact time. And it's one of few actual tools that will make your brain fire 
all at the same time so that when you're seeing a story and hearing it, you are literally physically transported in it. So I always give this example of like when you're listening to The Lion King, you feel like you're in the Sahara. You feel the circle of life around you. You're looking at the, like the beautiful wasping manes of the lions. And that's because you are physically transported into that story. And so the experiences become your own. The values become your own. You're able to actually feel, think, and see and have an emotional response because the narrative is shifting your brain in different ways. And then the other phenomenon is called neural coupling. So when you're hearing a story from somebody, your neurons in your brain fire in the same regions as theirs. So when they're talking about overcoming conflict or a specific sort of issue, your brain will fire in the same place, which creates a connection and empathy and, and oxytocin. It just feels good. So you're like, yeah, I relate. I get you. I feel you. It's the only tool we have on this planet to be able to literally step into somebody else's shoes metaphorically and mentally and that's why story is so incredibly powerful and it's so much more effective for better or for worse. There's a lot of dark sides of storytelling. We've seen storytelling being used to manipulate people's fears, to mm, be able to yep. put certain people in positions of power and leadership who are basing a lot of their stories on false ideas, on completely blatant lies. And that stirs an emotional response in people and people follow it. There have been brands who've manipulated story to get people to buy things that they don't need and telling them, you know, about problems that they don't have about their bodies and who they are and how worthy they are or not. So there is a dark side to storytelling. And I think people need to understand that stories happening all the time, whether you're in control of it or not being Mm -hmm. cognizant of it and also learning how to do it yourself to be more effective and intentional to use metaphor and symbole and understanding how you can integrate values and emotions and the needs of the listeners into your story will make you more effective for whatever goal you're trying to get to. Because whatever that goal is, storytelling is in the way, whether it's a personal goal of improving your performance or confidence, whether it's a goal in getting people to give a damn about your idea, you have to be a good storyteller and have narrative intelligence about how you're thinking about it and communicating about it. It, right now, now you have, as we look out into the, the world of like marketing and branding, uh, the the past like two months of in these challenging times, uh, like, I don't know, like, it's uh, here's some challenging times for you, you know, take a pandemic and now put on a layer of anger and protest and now do these challenging times. <laughs> that. I, I do not. Uh, I do mm-hmm. not uh, envy the brand sponsored content writer who now has to do that. Is that you? Do you have to do that right now? <laughs> no, thank God. Yeah, it's like you got. It's very uh, rocky waters to tread right now, and I think the one thing the brands have to keep in mind with this is, you know, these issues have been around for a long time. Uh, police brutality, the systemic killing of black people on TV and in public has happened for decades. And that is why these things are reaching a breaking point. Because when you have a pandemic, an economic downturn, and then multiple murders on video back to back, people are having a breaking point. And the brands that are standing up and saying something, what's even more effective is not just describing that we're with you, we see you, we're going to acknowledge this thing that we pretended wasn't an issue, like it was a boogie boogie man that no one wanted to talk about. It's great that they're at least acknowledging that this issue exists. And then the next step is, how are you publicly talking about what actions you're going to take as a company? So many companies have huge positions of power and their power and their production and their practices contribute Uh 
and exacerbate these issues, or they can be directed to solving them. So that could be their leadership practices. That could be their promotion and recruitment and, and inclusion and retention practices. That can be the ways that they actually produce their products. Who's involved? Who are they paying? What resources are they extraditing? So all of that is what people want to see. And if you're going to do branded content, it's like, what are some of those commitments you're making? Because that's what people will resonate in here. And even if it's like, we're, we have products, we're donating, we're helping people in areas that are being hit really hard by different aspects of these challenging times we're going through. People want to see not only just that story, but the actions that follow. And that's what I say about storytelling, too. It's really important to match story and narrative with lived action, because a huge gap in between means you're going to be losing a lot of trust. And I think that's what people are facing right now is who can we trust? Who's genuinely showing up in action and not just performatively because it looks good because that's an oppression past too, where it's like, well, I said something. That's all I needed to do. It's just, I put a sticker on my chest. Yeah. And it's like, that's not enough. I mean, it's performative and it's doing it because it looks good without the intention of actually contributing something that solves the problem. So I always say to people, what is the intention? What is the action and how does it match the narrative? So that all three are powerful punch versus being manipulative with your media and your PR and then going back to the status quo and doing things that are actually detrimental to making these issues better. You know, I just was on a rant with my uh, husband today uh, uh, talking about reporters and having been a reporter and local news reporter and how conservative you are as a reporter. It, it's and not conservative like big C, conservative small C. And and I was just reading a rundown of how the word choices that various, you know, Slate versus New York Times versus CNN um CNN had, a, I guess, a headline that said um, uh, NYPD SUVs appear to run into the crowd, you know, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, happened kind of between where you and I live of driving these two SUVs into a uh, a crowd of protesters. And I thought, oh, yeah, see, I, you know, it's 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 akin to uh, we can't call a lie a lie. It, it ties also back to, well, he's not racist because he's not wearing a hood. He's not. Yeah. It, it's all I, I, I. It's it's fascinating in real time, but it's fascinating. I just find the choice of words, and I totally get it. I totally get why they do that. Having been there, you're kind of terrified to make that leap into calling someone a liar, into calling someone a racist. And, and but then you get to the point where appears to drive into a crowd. No, no, it's on video. (laughs) It did drive into a crowd. And also the SUV didn't drive into the crowd. It's the officer driving the SUV drove the vehicle into the crowd. You know, let's where who who made the action, not the car, the driver. Right. And I think what people, you know, have a hard time processing and understanding, and this is why I've been saying this, I've said this on my podcast and in a couple of posts, why racism needs to be rebranded. Because, you know, past overt, very direct racism was violent in your face, the KKK, people burning crosses on lawns, lynching people, etc. The covert racism, the subtle beliefs, microaggressions, behaviors, all of that, that happened daily in workplaces, in decision making, in the language that people use to describe the events that are happening around them, is, is racist as well. And it's part of the conveyor belt towards different types of oppression. But we can't label them because people are like, well, as long as it's not, you know, 
some some KKK stuff, it's not racist. And I'm like, it actually quite is because it helps to contribute to the system of oppression. I think the media plays an immense role in that and the double standard of reporting around the issues that we're seeing. And I've said this as well, you know, the language that we use, even Trump saying that the people we're seeing at these protests are looters and thugs. The word thug right. is coded language, which is the idea of signaling to people what you're really trying to say without directly saying it. There's lots of words that people use for black people derogatorily without saying black people. Um, so that's, it's, it's a racist tactic that we have to relabel and figure out what new language is. One thing I've been saying is like, let's just start calling people melanin first. Yeah. Because it is universe to do certain things and not, yeah, like, why don't we make up some new words? I've also said pigment peaked and shadow shame, <laughs> like being able to say other words and it sounds silly and funny, but I'm like, if we had new language to label the different behaviors and beliefs, so people aren't so viscerously resistant because people are more resistant to the label versus changing the behavior. Yes. They don't want to change the behavior. They just don't want the political and public consequences of the behavior. So it's sort of like if somebody told you to stop smoking and you're like, well, I'm not smoking anymore, but you are. You just want it to be called something else. It's like, well, you're still smoking, though. You're probably going to get cancer. You just don't want to stop smoking. So we're going to call it something else. Like, okay, you're vaping now, right? It's like, yeah, that's the that's the same sort of thinking. And so I think it's very important for people to understand that it's okay. Everyone in some shape or form, because of the society you live in, and the way that it's constructed has enacted racist ideology, belief, and behavior. Everybody in some way, whether that's the things that you buy, the arguments that you have when you see social justice happening, the ways that you interact with other people who are not like yourself. Like there's all these different ways people do it. That doesn't mean you're a bad person. And I think that's an issue is people are so black and white in their thinking, literally, that they can't take in the idea that some of their behavior is problematic without this full on idea of like, well, I'm a horrible person and now I'm going to be a pariah. It's like, no, you can have some of those racist beliefs and ideologies and behaviors and not be a horrible person, but you do have accountability and need to change it. And so that term, I think we need to flip it on its head and figure out some other language so that people can be willing and open to labeling their own behavior and not have that cognitive dissonance so we can have more productive conversations and address the issues that are underlying in all of this. Cause that's what fuels all this stuff. Like this tipping point we're seeing, that's a, that's the peak of the iceberg. That's just the top of it. That's the end result of daily, what we consider innocuous language and practices reaching a head. So we have to stop all the daily behaviors and microaggressions. So we don't keep seeing that same sort of violent end result. And that's the most important work to begin right. with is that day-to-day interaction, the day-to-day language, the day-to-day, the day-to-day belief and behavior. And the acceptance of it. I, I think it's... Um, exactly. Um, I, I think it's just, it's a constantly, it's it's the work of the white folks like myself is to, is to be aware of when these things lift up things, would trigger things. And you're thinking, now, why do I think that way? And because I was thinking about, you were t- talking about green eggs and ham. I won't, you know, you can't protest over here. You can't protest over there. You know, that was hilarious. Because also in storytelling, we can be funny too. You know, I, and I, and you know, comedy tells good stories too. But in fact, I, I will, I will pass to you since I just completely stepped all over the funniness of that of, and yes, you know, like uh, because it triggers up like, well, why are they breaking windows? You shouldn't be. Why are you, you know? Right. So, yeah. But that's why I said it. So the way, <laughs> and that also came from a joke I was making <laughs> with a friend because we were just talking, we talk, and that's the thing I don't think people understand, especially like 
with a lot of black communities, you have to, you talk about this stuff all the time. It's not like it happens, you know, every once in a while because of one big event, we're just constantly processing this because we're dealing with it all the time. And so things will just come out and jokes will happen. And I was like, yeah, to see everybody's sort of anger and resistance to the protests is really similar to the Dr. Seuss's green eggs and ham. Like, I do not like your protests here. I do not like your protests there. I do not like when you kneel. I do not like how they make me feel. Because that's pretty much what everyone's saying. Right. They're like, I really, point blank period, don't want you to resist at all. It makes me uncomfortable. I don't care the form or fashion of it, but I'm going to pretend I care so that I look socially acceptable. I'm going to say to you what you should do is protest in these three ways versus this. That's not true because when people did those things in the past, you didn't like that shit either. So it's not about the form or the flavor. You just don't like people protesting or resisting at all, no matter the form. And what's also interesting about that is it shows a lack of what I call historical amnesia, which is you clearly aren't cognizant of the many levers and ways that people have been showcasing these issues through media, campaigning, political canvassing, economic protests, nonviolent protests. There's lots of levers that have been pulled for decades. So this is not the only tactic. This is one of many, and they have to work in tandem together to be effective. But the only one that people seem to pay attention to and that grabs attention is protests. And Obama released a an article today about that where he was saying we need both together we need protests and as we've seen from other you know social movements in the past you need a a number of tactics working together in tandem to create a social movement to create a change that is to get the media attention and narrative of the media through disrupting the day-to-day status quo and then you also need to use that and feel that energy into political canvassing policy mm-hmm. etc so it's it's interesting because again i think people I, I think people are missing the point that a lot of people are cognizant of what they're doing i don't think that there's a lot of people there's some people who are unconscious and they're like i didn't realize that that derails the conversation there are people who've done that because that is a tactic that they've learned over many years And it's a resistance because they feel comfortable and they are afraid of changing and they're afraid of admitting certain things because that would rock their world. I've been saying, and this is another joke I've been saying to people, it's like a lot of white people are learning about racism like Santa Claus. So they're learning about Santa Claus when they're 60. (laughs) They just learned that Santa Claus is not real. And so imagine that grief that you went through as a kid when you learned that Santa Claus is not real. What? You have to process that reality. Right. It's very similar <laughs> where people are going through grief and, oh, my gosh, and all the things that I believe to be factual and cemented and true may not be. And so some of those tactics are just a way to assert comfort. And so they know what they're doing. That's what I say. Like, there's a consciousness around some of that. And then there are some people who are unconscious of it and it, it feels innocuous and, you know, it's about everybody's livelihoods, et cetera, but it misses the point, especially if I hear one more person quote MLK, I'm going to throw a chair <laughs> through a wall. And I'm like, do y'all not realize, and I've said this before, I'm like, he was assassinated. Okay. He was a nonviolent protester and he was assassinated for his nonviolent protests. He was the most hated man in America while he was alive. People did not like what he was doing. So to to have him turning in his grave right now and you're essentially bastardizing his work and his message for your own gain and comfort is deplorable, quite honestly. And so that's why I think language is so powerful and important because 
the narratives that people shape and the stories that they tell, no matter how true they are or not, becomes the dominant narrative in the lexicon. And that's why we need to have counter narratives to inform people and to stop that so that we can focus on the real issues versus being derailed and talking about the protests themselves versus what are the problems that created the protests to begin with. Maybe we should focus our energy and our time and our attention and analysis to that. Yeah. I mean, it's, and it's a constant thing. It, it's like ever vigilant, right? I, I think the thing on, for, for my white folks side is that, are we really surprised every time one of these stories hits? It, it, that's what I always, that's the narrative I always see is like, oh my gosh, you know, like what? And, <laughs> yeah. Right. I'm just like, are you though? Are you? I was saying this today to a friend where I'm like, I, what I find really surprising is when you look back in the past and you say, for instance, the desegregation of schools, like in Little Rock, right? When people were coming to the schools and protest, I mean, droves of white people who are uh, furious and really angry about the structures changing, about Jim Crow ending, about segregations of schools ending. And there are people who are still alive now that were at those rallies who are saying, we don't want your black ass in our school. And I'm like, those people are still alive. They're grandparents and they've had kids and their kids have had kids. And so it's always surprising to me is like, is that not talked about? Right. Is it sort of a hidden shame? Are people not, because I know what my grandma went through. Like my grandma told me about her life. Like there's a lot of elements about her lived experience that I will never experience. She grew up in segregated Memphis and there are parts of the city you didn't go to or you would be mur- murdered straight up. It's like, we just don't go there because that's what you do. That's just what you knew in a segregated, you don't use that fountain. You don't go to that place. That was her lived experience. And so it's fascinating to me is, is it a surprise or is it because it's it's known but just not talked about? Are there elements of those experiences from the past and those people are still alive and around today with firsthand accounts of how they handled those moments and what they and how they showed up in those moments? Are they just not talking about it? And I think that does happen in a lot of white circles where maybe there's a huge separation between certain groups because then there are other groups, right? There are white people who did go to the bus boycotts, who did show up at the lunch counters, who were allies and protesting and getting dogs sent on them and, and hoses sprayed at them. And are those two groups just not talking at all? And I'm always curious. I'm just, I'm not sure. I don't know what the answer is, but it's always really interesting to me about these lived worlds and separate experiences. And I'm like, are people not overlapping or sharing any of that or are they just sort of brushing it under the rug yeah and and the, and thus uh, to go back to our very beginning it it becomes stories like we have to constantly tell these stories and and make sure the narrative mm-hmm. is is reflecting the story that needs to be told that it's fighting back against stories that are you know being propagated oh my god i just made up a word there propagated out there <laughs> propagated. propagated that's our new word of the day but you know that it's that it's it's constant and it's and it's ever if it's ever powerful on both sides man uh, you know like on good sides and bad sides these stories are freaking powerful and they're so powerful that's what history is right history is narrative it's narratives that we create around events and if we are not cognizant of the narratives that we're believing and also sharing, then we can continue down the same path and repeat history. And I think a lot of what we're seeing right now is a reckoning and an opportunity to create new narratives. And I call that sort of the status quo shifting message. It's a model that I teach. How do we create these new narratives and these new ideas and stories to kind of envision a new future and what that can operate and look like versus repeating the same 
kind of stale old, not inclusive, not innovative narratives that we've had from the past. And I think this is our time to examine that, especially when everyone's stuck inside. You ain't got nothing else to do. You can't go to the grocery store, really. You can't go to the museums. You can't go to the restaurant. You can't go to the club. You're in the house. Use this time to examine some of those narratives and figure out what are the new ones that can be created so we can move forward and stop repeating the same behaviors. Well, and the good place to start, watch the segue, is to follow you. So how can people find you? They can find me at thenewquo.com. That's T-H-E-N-E-W-Q-U-O.com. They can also follow me on the Instagram at Christina Blacken and on Twitter at C Blacken. And yeah, it's just, I speak a lot of the same things online. I am always sharing stories and narratives from my own personal experiences from history, education. And I'm going to be launching an academy very soon around narrative intelligence that I'm excited about. So if anybody is interested in that, just go to my site and there'll be more information about it. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you for joining me today on The Breadwinners. Whether you're a choice or a chance breadwinner, we hope you enjoyed the time you spent with us and that you'll share your own story at thebreadwinnerspodcast.com. How are you making it work? We'd love to know. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review it. Let us know what you think about The Breadwinners. Help us tell the stories that mean the most to you. And until next week, keep hustling. This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM, women's voices amplified.